Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Heath Payne. We're at Abbott Claim in Carlton, September 3rd, 2020. Heath, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, first question for you, uh, why wine? Why wine? Um, well, you know, I don't, I don't think it... That's an interesting question. It's, it's a very simple question, but that's kind of like a big, big question. Um, I don't know that it ever was wine. Um, I think I know that more today than I've known all along. Um, I think mostly, I mean, I, I really fell into it um, because <clears throat> for me, I didn't grow up with a, a wine background. My family um, uh, did not consume, you know, alcohol or anything like that. I grew up in a, a family where that just wasn't the thing. And so wine wasn't on the table or anything like that. It wasn't a part of my life. But uh, um, being outside, uh, exploring uh, the natural world through my own eyes um, was very important to me uh, growing up. I grew up in a large family, so it's, it's very easy to uh, um, uh, be imaginative and find your own place. I grew up uh, in, a, in a family where I had five sisters. So I spent most of my time avoiding <laughs> my sisters. And uh, so I would just take off and, you know, uh, explore. So I think the outdoors were uh, my friend at a very early age. And um, so I think that was really kind of what led me to just continue exploring. Mm -hmm. And um, I enjoyed uh, you know, working part-time jobs. I, I never really found what I was interested in academically. I dabbled with uh, college here and there, pursuing, you know, anthropology and, and different ideas, but nothing to any great extent, you know, mm -hmm. community college-based. And, mm -hmm. and I found myself always, uh, you know, finding part-time work, um, whether it was uh, just, you know, cleaning up construction sites or working in restaurants or, you know, record store or whatever just you know i'd work just long enough to save a few dollars and go hit the road <laughs> and um so i remember coming back from um I, I was actually hitchhiking around the southwest with uh, a couple friends and um decided to bail on that trip and come back I, well first of all i should say i grew up in northern arizona <laughs> and um so having the outdoors be your friend is, is very easy to do there um it's i grew up in the high desert so probably looks more like what people would think of know bend mm -hmm. that looks more like kind of the mm -hmm. terrain that I grew up in uh, and uh, so it wasn't the saguaro cactus that everyone assumes of Arizona most of Arizona is actually a lot of wilderness um, land mm -hmm. um, so I grew up in that and um, so we'd go uh, explore and I, I came back and um, needed to find jo find a job mm -hmm. and there was a <clears throat> a small ag town just north of the, the town that I grew up in uh, Prescott Arizona and um, you know that I'm from Prescott because I say Prescott and not Prescott. Uh, so there was a small little ag town called Chino Valley just north of Prescott. And there was a certified organic Concord grape grower there. And they had just planted several acres of uh, wine grapes, vinifera. And uh, 
a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing. Hey, they're looking for someone to, to help out in the vineyard. And so I was like, great, that sounds like fun. So I went and sp talked to them and they were like, this is, this is great because we want our full-time crew to, fo to focus on our cash crop, essentially, Concord grapes. <clears throat> and so we've got several acres of these wine grapes. We uh, need someone to, to uh, look after. And um, so I just kind of was thrown out there and asked a lot of questions. Some of it was figuring it out as I went, uh, read a lot of books and just really enjoyed that connection to something non-human mm -hmm. with the outdoors. It was a way to share the outdoor experience with something else. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just, uh, it really spoke to me and my interests. And so um, I started, you know, is, is this something you can do academically? Is this something, I, I, was, I was curious enough to actually want to get really analytical about it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started looking at uh, schooling options. Um, you know, I started doing the, the UC Davis extension program. Um, wasn't really suited to that style of learning. I like being hands-on in a classroom, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. I like to raise my hand. Um, uh, so um, I started looking at schools. And um, so Oregon was not necessarily on my radar. Pinot, Pinot Noir was not on my radar. I started learning about wine while I was working at that first vineyard, mm -hmm. um, just because wine was the, the ultimate reason I was doing it. It was mm -hmm. the, the end byproduct. And um, I was, you know, quickly faced with the realis with this, uh, this image of um, very elite people, um, a luxury lifestyle, and I, I didn't relate to that at all. And so I started looking at uh, producers who maybe didn't fit that mold. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember watching uh, an early Jancis Robinson wine tasting video, you know, uh, education mm -hmm. video, and she was in the Loire Valley. And um, there was this person, you know, this character, this producer, DDA Dagenau, on there. And his image and his persona, his attitude really just struck me. I was like, whoa, this is, this is not the, the Bordeaux Chateau that uh, I, you know, I was sort of led down this path mm -hmm. of. And um, <clears throat> so I started seeking out his wines and um, trying to find producers that seemed to match my, my image mm -hmm. and someone I could relate to and therefore maybe I could relate to these wines. Mm -hmm. And that also sort of correlates with the educational experience I was looking for. Um, I didn't know if, if ultimately, you know, if, if the only jobs were in Napa, maybe that's what it looked like. Um, but I had a bunch of friends moving to Oregon at the time, um, get, getting out of Arizona and deciding they wanted to go. Uh, they were all musicians and artists and stuff like that, and Portland seemed to be the right place. And so I just started, well, are there schools up there? And, mm -hmm. and uh, sure enough, there was, um, you know, Walla Walla Community College, uh, Washington State University, Oregon State, um, and I found Chemeketa Community College had uh, recently uh, opened there what was at that time called the Northwest Viticulture Center. And I said, well, this looks pretty interesting because it was both academic and real practical in the vineyard in, in a teaching winery <coughs> situation. And um, so I said, that's it. And I convinced my uh, then girlfriend uh, at the time that, hey, let's let's go to Oregon. She said, okay, you know. <laughs> um, so we packed up and, and headed north. Um, this was in 2006. And um, 
I started school right away and she was uh, art focused in Arizona and uh, had a, a uh, education. Um, she graduated from the University of Arizona with biology, so she said, "Well, I'll pay the bills while you're in school. I'll get I'll get a job." And and so um, I was able to just focus really closely on my studies and also um, find part-time work in, in get, trying to get as much experience as possible. Mm -hmm. So for the first couple of years, I mean, it, it looked like um, you know pruning in a vineyard you know during the winter time and then I was in this random cellar over here helping out and then just kind of doing the rounds. Um, it was really great though because in 2006 right as soon as we we got here I'd started classes and then that um, harvest the, the harvest of 2006 I actually got a, an opportunity to go to France mm -hmm. excuse me through a friend of a friend whose family uh, owned a, a small domain over there called uh, in southwest France called uh, Domaine de Petit Pin um, and so I said, great, let's do it. And it was uh, another sort of altering experience for me because it was a family run um, domain and it was not um, uh, ultra premium wine. It wasn't premium wine. It was, a, it was wine for the community. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that really stands out culturally to me in France is how community oriented it is local cheeses, local breads, local the, the the concept of terroir really extends far beyond wine over there. And getting to to spend time, you know, living with this I lived with them and so shared the day-to-day -day with them and the rhythm of life during that time. We started harvest at midnight and we worked until around six o'clock in the morning. Um, at which point you could take an espresso break or, or whatever, they don't really eat breakfast. And so somewhere around seven or eight o'clock, the local patissier would come driving through and say, you know, how many baguettes do you need today or croissants or whatever? And you'd get something if you wanted it. And then towards lunchtime, you, everyone just shut down operation, went, had a beautiful lunch, and then went and took naps. <laughs> and, and I was blown away by that. And um, then eventually everyone starts to migrate back into the, to the winery and you work some more and then it's dinner time and then you have a wonderful dinner and then you go to bed for a few hours and you get up at midnight and you start it all over again. And it was just wonderful rhythm of life. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that really appealed to me. And um, so when I came back, uh, I was really committed to learning more about the industry that I was now in, the Oregon wine industry, and found that there was this similar um, rhythm, very culturally oriented, very community oriented, and I just, I, I kind of fell for it. And so from there, I started really um, exploring what Pinot Noir looked like and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and academically, I was doing uh, viticulture, probably that was my main focus. Mm -hmm. But I quickly realized that there was more uh, employment opportunities in the wine, on the winery side. Um, and I was also intrigued by that at that point. So I did both programs at Chemeketa. Mm -hmm. um, I did the vineyard management program and the wine production program. And while I was in school, I um, started uh, interning at uh, Witness Tree Vineyard. Um, Bryce Bagnall had just passed away a few months prior. And it was somewhat serendipitous in the sense that uh, I was familiar with the Witness Tree wines and before when I was when I decided to come to Oregon I was exploring some of the wines from up here and Witness Tree was always one of those that really stood out to me and um, had learned a lot about Bryce prior to that and so 
um, having the opportunity to come in and work with uh, Stephen Westby not long after that and uh, uh, alongside Stephen who is still to this day a, bi a big inspiration for me and um, so I, I spent part-time in the vineyard, part-time in the cellar, and then um, when I graduated from school, I think 2009, um, they said, they uh, basically promoted me to the cellar master. And I stayed there, so I was there from around 2007, spring of 07, I believe, to, uh, to um, the end of harvest of 13. Um, at which point I decided that uh, it was time to see something new and explore other opportunities and um, I'd become curious about Washington and um, had an opportunity to go out and uh, explore that industry and um, I, I won't say too much about that I will say that I came back about eight months later um, and it was really because of the um, a very different sense of community a very different um, uh, cultural landscape and um, I, I think well I'll, I'll just I'll just say it, it just lacked the sense of community that the Oregon wine industry has mm -hmm. I kind of knew that right away right as soon as I got there here in Oregon people are very collaborative it's it's uh, what's good for one is good for all kind of for the most part uh, feeling and so there's all these collaborative efforts throughout the industry um, everything from Oregon Pinot Camp, uh, IPNC, which is more of a broader outreach even. Um, <clears throat> and then all these, just these, these grand networking opportunities, ways that people work together, all the, the AVAs, and um, it's just absolutely wonderful here. And uh, I, I didn't get that sense out there. And everything was fairly uh, proprietary from one winery to the next and, and whatnot. And um, so I just really felt the desire to, to come back and thankfully my very supportive partner and you know was like sure let's do that and um, uh, so we came back and um, I explored the uh, we, we moved to Portland um, so uh, I was spent a couple years exploring the opportunities in the what was a very quickly uh, growing Portland urban wine scene mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but once again it really it was fascinating being in the sort of even another dynamic of the Oregon wine culture, one that was very fast moving, very social, um, and very competitive, um, but also very creative and exploring and pushing boundaries and really, um, really uh, almost in a, in a sort of a punk rock way of, of kind of pushing back on some of the, the very root, you know, routine oriented uh, ideas of, of a, lot, a lot of the valley. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was fascinating, but I also uh, became, saw its limitations and, and my frustrations with where I was, what I was seeking. Um, I knew at that time that I was still really trying to find a way back to the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And um, I was good at the wine side at the winemaking side. And so I had an opportunity to um, work for a winery that was then in Portland and then went down to um, the valley. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, from there, uh, I remember having another one of those, those moments of, of, okay, have I seen, is this the end of this road now? What's next? 
And at that point, um, you know, I was, I've always been really great colleagues with a lot of the people in the Yola Amity Hills. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, you know, you should, you've really got nothing to lose, shoot the moon. And um, so I pulled into Bethel Heights and um, said, hey, can I work harvest? And they were ecstatic. And um, the, uh, that opportunity uh, pushed me beyond where I was and it became one of the most wonderful collaborative experiences of my life and um, to this day is still something I reference and which you know wasn't that long ago um, <laughs> but everyone there every single person there from the vineyard crew to the tasting room staff everywhere um, everyone just is so pushing at the very top of their game and day to day um, bringing everything they have and uh, that really stood out to me. And that was that cultural identity that uh, really spoke to me because um, everyone was inspiring to each other. Mm -hmm. There was no uh, seemingly, you know, sure there's, there's frustrations in any, any vineyard winery operation, but there was, at the end of the day, it was about what was right mm -hmm. and uh, the way to move forward. And um, so when I rose to the top pretty fast there, um, with a lot of uh, momentum and a, and a lot of opportunity. And so at that point you reach, you reach the point where you kind of then say, uh, what's next? You, there's sort of a theme going on here in my, you know. And um, I also realized I wasn't getting uh, any younger. And um, so when it was time to move on and find what's next, I really um, was open to possibilities, but something that would carry me into the next phase of my life. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not old by any means, but there is no denying the fact that the winery is more or less day to day, at least the cellar is very much a young man's game. And um, I wanted to kind of see what else and, and I, I'd always come back to the vineyard. The vineyard is always a source of inspiration for me. Um, it should always be the thing that informs everything that the winery does. And um, that was part of my frustrations with the Portland wine scene. It was just that there was, vineyards were sort of a, um, the grocery store for where you got your supplies. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, so I, I was uh, through a, a good, a great friend of mine, great colleague, uh, Mimi Castile. She um, put in a word to uh, the crew here at um, what, what was a newly reformed Abbott claim. Um, and wanted to talk, and I was, I, Albon and I uh, have known each other for a couple of years, just, just as colleagues. And I came out and we just had a wonderful, between Albon and Kristen and myself, we had a wonderful um, engagement conversation about culture and creativity. And um, it, I knew pretty quickly that this wasn't a, despite everyone's tremendous credentials here, it, that wasn't the thing that brought everyone together it was the desire to find a community and a culture of people that could work creatively together and build something new. And um, that spoke volumes to me. Mm. And um, I think everyone involved here, um, from Anthony to uh, David to uh, Alban, Krista, everyone here is, is really um, inspired that way. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's uh, where I'm at today, is um, 
someplace that I'd really like to root in. And uh, <laughs> given having been given the opportunity to take on such a pedigreed vineyard um, that was originally, you know, established by one of uh, Oregon's most renowned winemakers. Mm -hmm. And to, to now work with um, a new vision and a new way forward mm -hmm. is, um, is really special. What it, it's a tremendous opportunity. And um, yeah, so that's where I'm at today. That's a lot. A lot of good stuff there. Thank you. Um, I'm curious along the way, you, you talk about the vineyard kind of being what keeps pulling you back and, and inspiring you forward. I'm, I'm curious about, uh, you saw obviously saw a lot of different vineyards, a lot of different places, a lot of different ways to, to grow grapes. I'm curious about developing your own kind of personal philosophy towards grape growing and, and along the way and what you, what you took away from places that you worked either in a positive or negative fashion that kind of formed what you wanted to do going forward. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've been, um, I've always had it. So I'll say two things. There's, there's two underlying theories that I think I've, I've lived by, um, is one is, uh, nothing is what it seems. <laughs> There's no such thing as universal truth. Um, and the other is, is just simply being open to experience. And so I can literally say that like, no matter the experience, be it good or bad, I've always tried to find value in it. And so I think I've taken bits and pieces along the way. And I would say that um, a lot of the protocol oriented uh, ideas about acceding to the needs of the season um, to do the work. Don't just not do the work. Um, don't just ignore it. Uh, to do the work. That was something that um, stood out to me um, at certainly at Witness Tree, um, but very much so at Bethel Heights. Um, but I'd say that along the way I've, I've developed philosophies because I, I'll tell you that, that academically when I got out of school, wine, I didn't enjoy wine. I had gotten so technical and so analytical about how things should be done in the vineyard and how things should be done in the winery. I stopped enjoying the day-to-day -day pleasures and experience of it. And um, <clears throat> I had to sort of fall in love with it again. And I think that at that point I had, you know, moved on from, from Witness Tree, decided to see what Washington was about. And then I learned that it, I recovered from that from that uh, from that hangover pretty fast, so um, I came back and um, so I'd say that as far as philosophies along the way, it's it's really do the work, um, be open to possibilities and to accede to things, mm -hmm. and you know now where we are at, um, there is a a new generation that's coming up that is referencing both old ideas but also trying to find ways of quantifying ideas that had yet to be really ex expressed fully so i'm not so set in my ways mm -hmm. i am still looking forward to possibilities mm -hmm. and there's a lot of especially in the world of viticulture at the end of the day it's the work still has to be done and um <clears throat> but I'm finding newer and newer opportunities through increased interests, uh, thankfully, in what's being now called regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. I think 
I think in the in the age that we're in and the in social media and marketing and branding and everything, I think that term has has already become diluted. Um, the same way sustainable and natural and even the term organic has. Um, so I am I'm really moved and inspired by uh, my colleagues in this industry mm -hmm. who are truly pursuing things like that. And that has been so my philosophy there has really come from goes from protocol to not how, how do you expand that mm -hmm. how do you consider the whole system when you when you make one decision when you have one application one act to do is it just about efficiency and protocol how does it affect the overall system mm -hmm. and that is now my my thinking today mm -hmm. yeah you have to get to the end of the day <clears throat> and the work has to get done in that period of time. But I don't enter any one idea lightly. I think about the whole, how it affects the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people who I work with in the vineyard are probably just as frustrated with me with that idea, but um, uh, I'm thankful that they, that they are st still supportive and, and want to, to pursue greatness mm -hmm. uh, the same way I want to. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. I think it's you... sort of an evolving <laughs> philosophy, and there's things that have really made definitive marks, mm -hmm. and there's things that I, lessons in the moment, and um, I mean, I'm a human. I'm, I've got plenty of regrets, <laughs> but I try not to, um, I try to also see opportunity mm -hmm. with those things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this past year has been, you know, like a a big challenge of those of those ideas. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about this vineyard then in particular. You talked about kind of it's 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 it has a quite a legacy to it. Yeah. So tell me about its its history and and kind of what it what it looked like when you took it over and what you sort of saw as the way forward. Yeah. So you know, it, its history is is it's not a very old vineyard. I mean, the oldest vines. I mean, I, I think go back to two thousand and two. Um, and, but, you know, Ken Wright made a name of this place uh, early on, and he collaborated uh, with Anthony and with uh, Dave Gruders, and um, I, I think I think this whole ridge line, the Savannah Ridge, it's well, it's, first of all, it's very opposite of what I'm, I was used to a lot of, which was the in the Yola Amity Hills. This couldn't be more worlds apart up here, and um, so it's inspiring in a whole new way. Mm -hmm. And um, the pedigree that it's seen, you know, from, it's been host to a number of, of Oregon's, some of Oregon's uh, most renowned wineries. Mm. And um, it's a different quality of fruit. The seasonality of this place is very different. It's very fun uh, in the sense that it's, it's very exposed. Um, it's very, the ground dries out very fast. The soils are very consistent. Um, but there's all these underlying currents that really inspire me from day to day. The fact that these soils, you know, go back some 200 million years, that's mind blowing to me. <laughs> and so as the vineyard is now, you know, has had a, a pedigreed history, um, I see that as a big responsibility, but also see it as an opportunity to, um, take what has, the, the successes of the past mm -hmm. and make it even better. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, you know, Albon, when he came into this vineyard, which I think was around 2017 would have been his first opportunity here, he initially implemented some pretty obvious thinking, uh, transitioning to organic farming and um, introducing what was, or what is called regenerative practices through a no-till system. Um, and so my coming in has taken that. And um, while I don't believe certification is a necessary means to an end, I think it is a great opportunity to at least tell people, hey, this is our bare minimum standards. Mm -hmm. um, because as I mentioned before, the, the ideas, the frustration with some of these ideas becoming diluted um, is truly a frustration. Um, so I think having that organic certification that we'll, we'll now receive by the end of this year um, uh, will at least give that sort of standard mm -hmm. benchmark for these are the bare minimums. Mm -hmm. And it's a really inspiring space to now, I, I have the wonderful opportunity to collaborate with other people in the industry um, to create something, a bigger expression of Abbott claim beyond just grapes. Um, having the opportunity to increase habitat, mm -hmm. to increase pollinator corridors, to plant other crops, um, to take the challenges of life right now. And one of the great things that's come about for me in all this is uh, the collaborative nature of it. Everything from how I eat at my own house, how I buy food, who I support. <clears throat> um, you know, a lot of that's changed for me. Uh, I, you know, I buy as much stuff from local farmers as possible now, and I go out of my way to do so. You know, I'll drive 30 minutes up the road after work just to get two carton, you know, two dozen eggs, mm -hmm. um, because I believe in what they're doing and I want to support them. And um, it's those ideas that I've, I've also kind of brought back to to Abbott Claim. It was part of the creative process that that we talked about at the beginning, um, collaborating with other farmers to to grow other things here. Um, so to me, the future of Abbott Claim, where I want to take it, is not just in grapes, but is in a, a domain that is uh, where the whole place is celebrated for its diversity mm -hmm. and its high, high, high level of uh, quality, but also the idea of site resilience and habitat resilience. The Savannah Ridge is called the Savannah Ridge for a reason. Um, you know, at the top, it tends to mimic oak savanna. Um, we have oak savanna, we have bramble blackberry, we have a, um, a gifted forest at the very top uh, that some people have been able to find truffles in. Um, and we just have really interesting boundaries and edges here that, that are very inspiring. And I, I don't want to ignore that anymore. I want to take those, those ideas and celebrate them and make this a really, it's that it's not just Abbott Claim Vineyard, mm -hmm. and here's the wines from it. It's Abbott Claim, and it's this place mm -hmm. in the Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. So does that answer your question? It's a bit abstract, but it's also nothing I can put my, my thumbprint, you know, my, my finger on today, and this is a journey. I mean, this is really a, a big process and a journey, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm thankful I, I have the, the support through c collaboration and, and uh, to pursue it. I think we're at a tremendous point in our industry. What, what a great opportunity where now we have, we're, at, we're actually an industry where there's other industries that weave in, in and out of it and create these uh, great opportunities to further explore um, our environment. Mm -hmm.
and that's great. When you mentioned the support, I'm, I'm curious about that. Uh, obviously, that's uh, you have a you think of a traditional vineyard. You think of filling as much of it as you can with grapes and making as much wine as you can out of it, or selling as many grapes as you can yeah. to maximize profits. So, tell me about this more holistic approach and, and selling that to 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 the other people who have to support you here and, yeah. make, and making making sure everyone's on board with it. The, the, no, that's the reality <laughs> of it. I mean, I mean, because there's there's uh, when you're doing more of a curating like I'm doing right now. Um, of a larger property, you know, I've, I, I don't just have grapes to take care of. I have um, all of these, you know, habitat areas. I have a pond to take care of. I have roads to take care of. I have, well, for, multiple sites, really. Mm -hmm. Abbott Claim is just really the main ranch. Um, we have, you know, one other vineyard that, that we take care of. Um, and then we're in the process of developing another site in a very fascinating and interesting way. Mm -hmm. uh, this is down in the Eola Amity Hills. Mm -hmm. Um, so the collaboration there and how it's supported, yeah, I, there's, there's no denying the fact that, you know, you still have to sell something on a piece of paper that has some dollar signs and it has to translate. Um, <clears throat> and I think the work should always speak for itself. And if it's a failed effort, then that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't take it lightly, the, the amount of support that I have. So it, because of that, I choose to work with experts, <laughs> to work with people who know more about something than I do. Um, I would say when it comes to soil, what I'm learning today, you know, now is that um, if you want to be a good grape grower, you should really just study soil. You know, <laughs> don't spend your time studying grapes, study soil. And um, so I have the, a great opportunity to work with, you know, a great soil biologi biologist. Um, I have uh, opportunities to collaborate with an expanded viticulture team. Um, uh, I have this really great opportunity right now to work with uh, a colleague um, to diversify cover crops because that's something she specializes in. Mm -hmm. And there's what I think in my mind and what, what, you know, but this person has more of a history in understanding native plants and, and uh, habitat than I do. Mm -hmm. So being able to sell it on paper, yeah, you have to be able to, to, to tell a bigger story and um, see how it fits in with your story and, and the story here at Abbott Claim. Mm -hmm. um, so far, uh, I, I've been um, supported in the sense that the, the things that are exciting to me are also exciting to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And um, for right now, it's, it's, uh, we, we can pencil it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell me about um, now you're, you're talking about taking over established vineyards, talking about establishing your own project, which I'm going to ask you about more in a, in a second here. But I'm curious, uh, now that you have this experience um, with a, a number of different vineyards, a number, number of different sites, how do you judge a vineyard? What is it you look for when you come into a vineyard for the first time? What, what is it you see in your head in terms of what, uh, what needs prioritizing? And, and what, how do you judge whether a vineyard is, is worth your time, worth, worth your while? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think a, I, this kind of does go back to community and, and culture. And if you respect the people who are tending the vineyard um, and you, you understand that they uh, their interests. I think that's a big part of it is, is relationship and understanding their their pursuits. Because I, you know, 
I, we all know that there's limitations to a growing season. There's things you have to do. There's frustrations with, with farming. Um, and um, so there's that aspect. So to, there, there's some areas where you, you have to be lenient and other areas where you have to be look deeper. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, I think I look to people first. Mm -hmm. and, and then when we go into the vineyard, um, just overall vine health and the floor. If anything, I look at the, the, the floor more than I do um, the vines. And of course, once you're into the growing season, you, you can look at the health of the canopy. Um, were there missed opportunities? Um, what are they dealing with? If anything, it's almost like you notice the what are they dealing with versus what are they succeeding at? Because mm -hmm. um, that'll also speak a lot to, to how they're able to accede to the, to the needs of the vineyard. So I'd, I'd say that I look to people, I look to people first, mm -hmm. and then I look at the floor, and then I look at what is what what the the deficiencies are, um, not in a negative tone, mm -hmm. just in a manner of of um, what are what are we possibly in for for the season kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. What do you look for in the floor? Um, diversity of cover. Is it uh, clean cultivated? Is it um, is you know I'm not totally opposed to those ideas, um, but within reason. And how is it being used? Is it just is it just for efficiency and because if if you can go into a site and I'll, I'm I'm sure there's it'll raise a lot of hair on you know, hairs on backs people's necks right you now making making these statements but if you go into a vineyard and it's and it's it should in theory be an older established vineyard and it's clean cultivated and and, and it's you, you just have to and that they you know the drip system is still in and and, and whatnot and they're maybe they're managing it in a in a, just a more efficiency model. Mm -hmm. Um, let's get through the season. It's, it's the, it's the get her done approach. And that to me is very telling right away. Like, why do you have this? Why are you doing this? If it's just to get to the end of the day and how, how deep do these roots go? Um, but also the bigger thing is what could the, the mineralization possibly be like in the soil? Um, if this is the way that the ground is being treated and if the mineralization is not there and you're not getting the nutrient cycling and you're just acceding to, you know, it's the idea of, of eating a balanced diet versus just taking a vitamin for your, for your nutrition. You can tell pretty easy when you go into a vineyard what's, what's happening there. And so if it's the vitamin approach, I, I just, I can't help but just make the assumption that, that nutrient cycling is low and therefore mineralization is low and therefore mm -hmm. mineral uptake into the vines is low. And, and so, I would just have a hard time thinking that there would be any more than a, a primary characteristic out of that vineyard. Mm -hmm. um, but that's about as biased judgment as, as one could get. I mean, I'm very aware of that, and, and uh, but that's my experience. Mm -hmm. So I'd say people and the floor are the first two things that I, I look at going into a vineyard. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you talked about getting the site organic certified. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell me about how you define organic farming what, and what, what it means to you, organic farming. Yeah, so if anything, organic farming, in, in my perspective, um, you know, the, the first farm I worked for, um, as I mentioned back in, in Arizona, their, their cash crop was certified organic grapes. And, but then they also had a market garden. Um, they also had just these bigger systems in place. And they actually had more of a whole systems approach there. Um, they were certified through uh, CCOF. And, um, but they had a pond that they kept fish in and then the fish regenerated the water that would then be used. They would do flood irrigation mm -hmm. because of just where they were in the valley. It was valley floor. 
Um, and so then that water would go through and it was on a, the aspect was very gentle, but it would collect on the other end and then they would have it pumped back into the bond, it would, into, the, into the pond and it was this very regenerative, regenerative system. The family also grew everything that they ate on site. They had the market garden, they had the farm store, and then they also enjoyed the pond for swimming in during the summertime. It was just this bigger whole farm system because you can still walk into organic vineyards, organic farms, certified farms and vineyards, and, and it just, you can still get this sort of scorched earth sense of, of farming where they rely too heavily on certain things. And they're not necessarily acceding to the needs of the farm, just the needs of a certification. And um, so I say I define it a little bit differently. I'm happy to um, have the certification because like I said, I think it gives the model, the bare minimum of what we're doing. I will do what it takes to meet that, but then I'm gonna do beyond that. So organic farming to me really looks, I think probably something similar to what I think a lot of people would call biodynamic farming and regenerative systems. I mean, I mean biodynamics I think allowed people to experience the regenerative model in a vineyard setting. Because um, I think a lot of the, the applications of regenerative farming ha actually have limited application in the vineyard. But when you take it through the, the interpretation of biodynamics, I think you start to get closer mm -hmm. to your needs. Um, so I'd say that as far as uh, organic farming, that's, that's what organic farming really looks like to me. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, we'll, we'll use the certification so that consumers and people can know here's the bare minimum of what we're doing. But I think the bigger farm system will speak for itself. Mm. And that goes back to what I was saying. Just I, I think your work has to speak for itself. If you're, if you're willing to put the cork in that bottle of wine and, and put it in front of someone, you have to answer for everything there. And um, I feel the same way here. Mm -hmm. So, Do you feel that that's an expect an increased ex consumer expectation. Do you feel that people are pushing forth more of that in their wine? I I don't believe there's any market studies that really say organic certification gives you ten dollars more a bottle. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything that proves that. But I think if it's a conversation I want to have, then we need to I need to curate that. We need to curate that. So I don't know that it is the the perception and the the um, interests are totally there yet um, but if I can help curate that conversation then that's that's a great way to do it mm -hmm. I know one of the one of the things when we hear about organic farming is that it, it reduces the tools in your toolbox it, it leaves you fewer fewer kind of standard farming practices that that uh, to to um, defend your vineyard or, or to protect your vineyard so tell me about learning that and and how you've kind of developed your new tools uh, in, in the organic system and and what changes in the kind of year-to-year day-to-day uh, farming practices for you to keep a keep a healthy organic vineyard yeah yeah so it, it's interesting because um, there's a great argument to be made about you know what's more sustainable three vineyard passes with with uh, sulfur or one vineyard pass with with something uh, you know non-organic um, you know, compaction of soil, carbon, all these things kind of play into that. You, you, could, you could argue both sides up one side and down the other. Um, a lot of it does come back to the soil for me and um, how the plant responds to certain things. Mm 
um, that's a big part of my efforts here is, is just in soil management. So I do know that um, with those limited resources, um, well, first of all, I'd say that there's a lot more resources becoming available if you're willing to look for them. If you're, like I said, if you're just handing, getting the piece of paper of like, okay, here's your organic spray program for the year, get her done. Well, then you're probably going to feel the limitations more than taking the time. And, and, and it's exciting for someone like me to, to find out other opportunities and other ways mm -hmm. of, of looking at things. Biodynamics really helps that, um, broadens things. Um, I, I'd say that part of the reason our, our canopy looks so great this time of the year, you know, we're, we're into September now, and I, I, things are still really green out there, um, despite the heat that we're getting right now. Um, the canopy's still, you know, they're, they're looking a little tired, but <clears throat> for the most part, um, they look really great. And I think part of that is because of, um, you know, we, we got rainfall late into the season. We still, you know, did the season with, with much lower rainfall, and the rainfall than, than average, mm -hmm. whatever that is anymore. Um, but we got little bits, you know, all the way up and through July. And so I think that helped, but I think also having Working with the biodynamic teas helps us uh, alleviate some stress. Mm -hmm. And it's that idea of homeopathics where you get to start to work with the vine to sort of trigger subtle reactions that have a bigger impact. Mm -hmm. And I think when you start to acknowledge that, that you can work in very subtle ways, it doesn't, you don't just have to get all of your foliar nutrition out in two passes you can spread it out in smaller increments and you can it's as if you're you know the vine's getting a meal and you can look at the opportunities you have with soil mm -hmm. to increase nutrient cycling through increasing the, the soil microbial diversity through compost teas on the ground um yeah I, th I think the toolbox just gets even bigger um because when you're doing it the other way <clears throat> Like I said, you can argue, I think really the, the, the soil compaction and the carbon inputs are the biggest argument mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. But it's not, certainly not as fun, certainly not as interesting. And I don't know that you, in the end, 10 years, 20 years down the road, it'll still yield the same results. Mm -hmm. um, I want this site to be very strong and I don't see conventional farming as getting us there. I want this to be a strong site decades from now. Mm -hmm. um, and. I don't see conventional farming gifts. If anything, I'm seeing the repercussions of it, uh, of that logic. Um, and so I've learned from in the past, you know, one of the great things that uh, Ted Castile and Mimi Castile did at Bethel Heights, you know, most of that vineyard is old vines from the, from the late 70s. And one of the things that they did is instead of combating phylloxera, you know, spraying a systemic or ripping out, replanting, doing all these things, they saw regenerative farming as an opportunity to potentially slow the spread of phylloxera. Mm -hmm. And that's why they went into a no-till system. And as a result, I mean, those vines are still producing pretty heavy today mm -hmm. um, and producing very expressive uh, wines. And so I'd say that just because you have a smaller toolbox, well, first of all, I would say, no, the toolbox isn't smaller. I'd say it's bigger. <laughs> and second of all, I think, I think learning when to uh, react and when not to react is important. Mm -hmm. um, I've done a lot of observation this year at this site and there's times when there's 
yeah, I can, I can look back at this year and say there were some missed opportunities. And I'm excited about hopefully not making those same mistakes next year. Um, but also the philosophy I had at the beginning of, of, this, of the growing season and my intentions at the beginning of the growing season have evolved. Mm -hmm. And as such, the, the practices uh, both you know, in the vineyard and on the floor have, have evolved as, as the season has gone on. Um, I think having those philosophies and those goals in mind give you something to work towards. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I'd say that circling back around in this very long explanation, uh, I think the toolbox is actually bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a great explanation, by the way. You mentioned seeing the effects of, of long-term conventional farming. Tell me more about that. What, are, what, what do you see in a vineyard that's been conventionally farmed for some years? Well, I'm speculating. Okay. I'm speculating because we do um, deal with uh, uh, red blotch. And, you know, there's been so much research over the years. Uh, and a lot of it's still going back to, you know, vectors and, and whatnot. And then the research that's now becoming out on how to manage it how to live with it, it's, it's all goes back to the, to the, like that, okay, here's the same answer for everything, just fertilize and irrigate everything, and, and, and you'll get a greater canopy mass to then, you know, com, you know uh, offset the, the uh, ripening deficiencies. And um, I was like, there's just, so, there's something more here. And so I think we're seeing depleted soils, because we're seeing depleted soils, we're seeing uh, very low microbial soil, uh, microbial, you know, just, just soil biology in general. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that something, anything's growing right now means there's soil biology. There's something happening there. It, it exists. But can the populations be in greater numbers? And can they, if, if they're in greater numbers, um, greater diversity, then can I also then have just a broader spectrum of nutrient cycling, nutritional availability? Um, so I think we're seeing, on, on not just the vineyard scale, I think we're seeing repercussions to more conventional ways of farming, industrial agricultural agriculture and the repercussions of it. I mean, think about industrial agriculture. It's pretty new when you consider the, the existence of human, of human species. We've been around a long time. We've lived with viruses a long time. I think I had read somewhere that, uh, you know, I think it's upwards of 43% of human DNA is viral because the human species has existed with it for so long. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that speaks to multiple systems of life. And so when I think about land and soil and what's there and what's not there, um, that's, I think, where I start to see these increased diseases that we're seeing uh, on the agricultural side um, are, are the same that we're seeing on, you know, life above the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's pointing fingers and, and I don't have the answers and I don't have the explanations, but I think we, we um, need to rethink those ideas. Did I answer your question? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what you're talking about is, is, seems fairly revolutionary in terms of agriculture. It seems very, very new and yet we, we hear it a lot in Oregon, or at least we've heard it a lot in Oregon the last few years. I'm curious about your uh, as you've developed these thoughts and as you've sort of grown into your, your role in the industry, have you, how have you seen the industry itself evolve with, with these kind of, with agricultural practices? Yeah, yeah, I, I think we're um, at a tremendous, uh, I, I, I feel, 
I feel like we've been, this past year, we've been uh, held, held down by the great holdup. Um, but I think that has also spearheaded a lot of intention on the farming side. And because we have all of these, as an actual industry, what helps define an industry is the fact that you, you've opened up to other industries. Mm -hmm. And the fact that now we can collaborate with a lot of other industries mm -hmm. um, where more sustainable forms of farming are being tried in their farm systems. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a monocrop out here. These are grapes. And I want to change that so I can look to other farmers who are more diversified. Mm -hmm. And I think there's tons of opportunity. I think there's a lot of momentum in the wine industry, in the Oregon wine industry, to, we've always attempted to set an example for quality here, in my opinion. Um, and that goes all the way back to the early days of you know David Lett and colleagues. And I, I think that momentum is still very much present. And I, I think it's just really, it should be, that should be conventional. That should be the standard thinking. Mm -hmm. um, that should be the standard model. And I think we have opportunities to do that. The fact that some you know, certifying agencies that were initially resistant to calling out uh, herbicides are now coming back and saying, hey, we should reconsider these things. You know, I think as an industry, we're, we're finding the opportunities to, to say we need to set a, be a better and higher standard. If we want to be here in 50 years, <clears throat> um, we need to do the work today. Mm -hmm. I think there's enough like-minded people in this area that we can, we can do that. We can, we can push for this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay on that positive note with that. Like I'm sure, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of people who, who would argue, and I do know colleagues who have vineyards and they, they're just, if, if they could, they would just dump herbicide all over it, you know? But I, I, I don't look to them for inspiration. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'm happy to drink a beer with them uh, later on down the road, but, uh, but you know, you have to stand by your work. So you mentioned uh, uh, you, you took the winemaking path for a little while as well. You were, you were yeah. in the cellar a bit as well. Tell me about, uh, I know there's a couple of little labels that came out of that. Tell me about your own winemaking uh, background and, 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 the, and the labels you've created and yeah. and what, if anything, is going on with them at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, like any uh, cellar rat, you get anxious pretty quick to, to have your, your two barrels. And um, so I, I was... Uh, thankful early on that uh, I had that opportunity to tinker and explore and um, you know you realize one barrel is 23 cases and, and holy cow what should I do with this and uh, it was a great way to explore uh, technique and from I you know I started some of these things back when I was in school and still learning and so I was doing very traditional approaches and it was great because it, it expands your opportunity to, you know, I, th I think my background in being able to work with commercial yeasts helps me better, be more comfortable and better understand um, wild flora, you know, uh, and working with more native yeast fermentations and, and uh, secondary uh, fermentations, things like that. So um, my, the, the early label, I had a, my first label was a label called Peasant's Harvest, which really just kind of spoke exactly to what it was. I gleaned fruit from... Uh, 
the Chemeketa Vineyard, actually. Uh, I came in and, and grabbed a couple of, uh, grabbed some Pinot Blanc and, and some Tempranillo for some rosé, and it was, it was fun. Mm -hmm. and, but the fun became real pretty quick when, oh yeah, I need to do something with this. And so it was the, uh, it was the put them in a backpack and go walk into restaurants. And um, I was thankful that the response was very supported. Um, and so it, it just got, gave me that on-the-ground experience of, of um, making the wine, walking in the door, selling it, having those relationships with the buyers and the bartenders and whatnot, and, and certain people really championing. I wasn't making enough wine that I needed to spread it around everywhere. I just needed those, those couple of champions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, then as uh, my, my boss, as, as that production increased a little bit, I, I learned a, a really great lesson one year. It was 2009, and uh, big yield, lots of grapes that year. And I remember I had—I I won't give specific names—but I had shared um, a contract with uh, Tom Gary down at Kristen. So we'd shared a contract at another vineyard that was south of the Yola Hills. And I was thinking, okay, third leaf fruit. If they manage it the way we manage it at Witness Tree, it, it would see like one cluster per plant. Mm -hmm. um, I just had that in my head. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll sign on to that two acre contract right there. Um, Cause this year we'll get this amount of tonnage out of it. Next year will be this amount. Of, it'll, it'll grow, you know, incrementally. And visited, you know, I, I remember after fruit set, I got there, was visiting the site and I was like, holy cow, there is a lot of fruit here. And we need to, you know, do some thinning and, and whatnot. And, and the grower was like, well, this is a balanced crop for, for this. And I'm like, this is a lot of fruit for a young vine. So anyways, I trust, you know, he was very talented, very skilled grower. And um, yeah, come harvest time. And, and uh, what I thought was gonna be more like a ton and a half, you know, three quarters ton off of, off of each, you know, and then sharing it. Um, hey, five tons is on your way. And I wasn't prepared for that. Now five tons is, is you know, a, a drop, in, drop in a bucket. Um, but back then it was like, oh my God, I need to have a talk with Jenny, you know, because we were paying for this out of our, our pockets. And yeah, so I learned very quickly uh, the value of, of acreage contracts and, you know, making sure that things <clears throat> fit both sides, both parties. And thankfully the grower was very understanding and, and worked with me to, to uh, get it paid off. Um, but that moment made me think, okay, my, my employer at the time was like, yeah, it's a lot of Pinot Noir you're bringing in the door there, so maybe reconsider some of these things. And so I, um, that was the start of me getting curious about Washington. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking at opportunities in Washington and I'd been wanting to create a label that was a little bit more sort of provocative and, and uh, edgy. I really was, once again, you know, have continued to be inspired by the Dagonal wines and, and uh, the Dagonal wines always had these these uh, labels that were not so definitive. They were more abstract, um, and and celebrate you know celebrations. And uh, so I wanted something that was a little bit provo provocative. So I just started uh, my namesake label, which was just Pain Wine. And I had these really sort of dark images, you know, a wolf's head with a skull on it and everything like that. And I was working with Rhone varieties out of Washington and worked with some really great people and some really fun sites. And that project kept growing and growing and, and became very real very fast. So <laughs> I, was, I was, uh, had to find a distributor. And um, you learn pretty quickly like what sells, what doesn't sell, and your competition. Where I was, I was a, an Oregon winemaker making Washington wines, 
but not like Washington. They were very acid-driven, very fresh. Um, and so they, they were just so, like you had to hand, hand sell everything. You had to explain everything. What does the label mean? How come, how, come how come your Syrah doesn't taste like this Syrah and stuff like that? And it just became really grueling to have to like explain everything. But one of the things that I was really successful with was the one label I had that was for the rosé. It was called Little Wing. And um, all of the artwork was done by uh, a friend of mine who I am still great friends with. He's one of my best friends to, to this day. We, we um, talk pretty much every day. Um, and we grew up skateboarding together and, and whatnot. He lives in Portland. He's a great artist. And um, so he did all the labels and did these wonderful labels for, for Little Wing. And um, that wine really took off to the point to where uh, everyone wanted it. And year after year, hey, when is this going to come out? When is this? Can we make sure we get an allocation of it? And so that became something that I was like, huh, well, this is interesting. And so I basically abandoned the rest of the portfolio and just focused on this one label and turned that into its own label, just called Little Wing. Mm -hmm. And um, thankfully, have a, a really great uh, lawyer who um, helped me get Oregon trademark on it. And um, I, their wines are not distributed out of state, so I can't get a you know a national trademark. But we reached out to the Hendricks estate and, and uh, got their thumbs up. Um, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. So we, 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 we are, we're the only people who have officially gotten the thumbs up from, from the Hendricks estate regarding using that name. Um, but uh, so that's worked out well. And, it, and it's just kind of kept going over the years. And it's grown into its own. Now it's three, cat three categories, uh, rosé, a red, and a white. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> And it's really a, 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 a label that um, I've now sort of, uh, my distributor, I'm in one of those really fortunate situations where they just, um, we work together very closely on it in terms of uh, prior to the season, how much is, is they want. Um, and we, we work on it together, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm able to contract everything. So it is, it, it is at this point, very virtual. Um, I don't want it to interfere with, my, with, with this path here. Mm -hmm. um, so it is a very virtual project that um, has taken on a life of its own. And we'll, we'll see where it ends up. I'd say that this project here um, is more important to me personally but I know that Little Wing now has a place in the world mm -hmm. and now has a place in the Oregon wine industry. Um, it's about a thousand cases now that's all sold pretty much in Portland, Eugene, and Salem. Um, so it's, it's, I, I don't think it should just disappear. Mm -hmm. um, but that's where it's at today, is, is it's, a, it's, it's a virtual thing um, and we'll, we'll see what happens with it, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell me about setting up a, a virtual winery, a wine label like that. Tell mm -hmm. me, uh, finding the grapes, finding the finding the space, finding the time. Uh, tell me about how kind of how how it works for you in, in terms of fitting it in with your with your day job. Yeah. So where it was at the very beginning when I was working for other wineries, um, you know, you had to negotiate those things. You really had to, you know, during harvest time, it was okay. I'm done. Here, my work's finally finally done. You know, the, the floors are all all mopped up and everything, and, and you've you've done everything you needed to for them. And then you're walking over to your space where you're that you're sharing with some, another buddy, and you're walking in that door at, at midnight, 
um, and you've got X amount of tons of grapes sitting there waiting for you to process. So it's really laborious. Um, and so I switched it to the more virtual model because of that. Um, it was, you know, as far as personal life goes, the, uh, it, you know, the, the title of uh, Harvest Widow is, is, a, is, a, is there for a reason. And uh, once I had a family, once, you know, my son was born and everything like that, it just, um, that time, this time of year, you know, where you're gone a lot is, is really, it makes it even that much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And so um, the frustrations to also come with shared spaces and whatnot, is this person paying their bills or they're not paying their bills? Are you, um, there's a lot of limitations there uh, for what me also working uh, and trying to run this. I think if I, if I was just all in on my project, I could accede to that better. Mm -hmm. But the way I saw to accede to it um, was one, I was about ready to abandon it and just focus on work. Um, and my distributor basically talked me out of that. And um, so I had to find another solution. And fortunately, one of, one of the wineries I was working for um, was a mover and a shaker. They had fruit coming in in-house, they had stuff they were contracting, they were doing cider project over here, they were doing a lot of things. And so I think one of the things I learned from that was, was how to operate these multi-tiers mm -hmm. um, and different labels and different brands. Um, and so that's the point where I said, well, I can do this on a virtual scale. Mm -hmm. And started reaching out to the colleagues I'd, I'd been, I, I was familiar with, who I, I was already working with, and said, hey, can we do these things? And yeah, let's do it. Mm -hmm. um, so it sort of, it developed pretty organically. Uh, it wasn't, that wasn't the business plan from day one. I'll be honest, there was no business plan. It was, it was the typical seller at, I bought half a ton this year, I'm buying a ton next year, I'm doubling, you know, you just do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but that's how it evolved organically. And yeah, I've had made plenty of mistakes along the way and have had plenty of financial woes with that. But now it's at a point to where it's, it's for the, it, by and large, it's, it's, uh, it pays, it's cyclical, it pays itself. Mm -hmm. It doesn't pay me, any, I think, me anything, but it, uh, it takes care of itself. Mm -hmm. I don't have to put any more money in necessarily. Um, yeah. You talked about your your kind of um, what's I'm looking for here. Uh, sorry, try this one more time. You yeah. talked about the kind of evolution of your philosophy uh, in the vineyard. I'm curious about on the winemaking side. Obviously, a lot of people who start making wine in the cellars make it because they have a vision in their head for something they're not able to do in their day job. They want to try something different, yeah. different varietal, different style. So tell me about that what, when you started it versus to now. What, what, is, what is the philosophy behind Little Wing? What are you trying to express? Um, I'd say that if there is a motto for that wine, it, it is really just celebrate the little, the little things in life that eventually lead you soaring to great heights. Um, that's the idea, that's the concept there. And so it is really all about freshness and wine as a, uh, on the, as a daily table, you know, as a part of food, as a part of the daily table. Um, they're really just wines that are, are meant to be enjoyed and celebrated and pleasurable. And um, I, I, I don't want to say don't overthink it, but yeah, overthink it, celebrate it. And, and that's what I, I try to do there is I try to uh, make sure the wines are fun and fresh and um, I'm not trying to define a sense of place. Mm -hmm. um, if anything, they're arbitrarily organ, you know, in, in that sense. Uh, but 
uh, from year to year. The grapes may or may not come from the Willamette Valley or something like that. So stylistically, I just try to make them fresh and approachable, mm -hmm. very food friendly, mm -hmm. and um, at a price point that is always approachable. But also, I believe in the whole experience. I don't think it's just put a cork in it, don't put a cork, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I like the way, I, I like the idea of the whole package deal, something beautiful that you get to hold, you, get, you found it on the shelf, you get to pick it out, you get to acknowledge the fact that like, people buy wine by the label, I still do that. <laughs> if something's curious enough to me, I'm still going to pick it up and, you know, read about it on the back. And if it's curious to me even further, then I'll, I'll take it. Um, so I want that experience and I want it to sit on a table and still look pretty. Um, there, there's a lot of ugly wine labels out there, <laughs> horrible wine labels out there. And it, you know, for whatever reason, and to put that on, in the age of all the, the media and the access to, to images and things like that we have these days, you'd, you'd think it'd be different. But uh, uh, I just like the idea of something really pretty being on the table. And um, if you paid $10 for it or, or $200 for it, I, I just think it should be a pleasurable experience through and through, both visually, sensorily, you know, physically, and then just the, the, the wine itself. I'm curious about uh Taking your taking your first wine to market, uh, what was the experience like for you? Scary. I was already doing um, a little bit of uh, hand selling for Witness Tree because at that time Witness Tree was self distributed uh, in Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, so I was already uh, times of the year when when the cellar was quiet, when the vineyard was relatively you know quiet winter time. Um, I would schlep a bag some days and just uh, throw wines in my bag and, and head up to Portland. And so Stephen introduced me to a lot of restaurateurs um, and uh, really great people. And you just get more used to the idea of just walking into some place and, hey, can I show you some wines? You know, you, you, you learn all the, the nuanced personality. There's a lot of interesting personalities in the, in the, the Oregon wine industry. There's even bigger personalities in the restaurant, <laughs> restaurant industry. And um, you learn some of those people and, and some of those doors you go back through and, some of those, and you just endure the punishment. And then some of those doors, um, you make really good relationships and really good friends. I'd say it was scary at first, um, but what's scarier is looking at a pile of wine that doesn't sell. And so you get pretty motivated pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think once you do it for a couple of times and then you just kind of get used to it and some days you come home with big success and that beer tastes really good at the end of the day. And then some days you come home and you are like, oh my God, how am I going to, how am I going to do this kind of thing? Um, but I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, builds character, but builds endurance is what it does. Mm -hmm. And, um, so yeah, scary, but I'm, I'm really happy I did it. Did you find that the, the Portland scene was was receptive to, to tiny labels, to, to people who maybe with not a lot of name brand recognition, yeah. that they were willing to give you a chance? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I think more so um, once that, that sort of new wave of restaurants came about. You know, I think um, there's some lists that have always been pretty exclusive to, to, crack, to crack into. Um, even some of my favorite restaurants in Portland uh, um, are still that way but because they know what they want and they're, they're trying to curate certain, you know, certain things. Um, I think we're psych we're coming back around to that too, where we're seeing some, some exclusivity or prior to all this. 
um, prior to COVID, we were seeing some of that exclusivity. Is it natural? Is it does it fit into these these certain categories and and whatnot? Mm -hmm. You know, by what definition? And and so I'd say that it got really really open and supportive very quickly. And I think prior just prior to COVID, I think things were getting a, a little bit more exclusive. But um, you know that idea of expansion and contraction and expansion and contraction, and I think we're in another one of those. Um, by default, we're very much in a con in a contraction period, um, and on the other side of it, you know, however long down the road that is, um, I'm I'm hoping for a really nice big breath of fresh air, and for just a big inhaling, you know, in, in into the lungs, mm -hmm. uh, it'll, it'll feel really really great. Um, so I think I think that the restaurant industry and uh, has has experienced that experienced that same sort of thing, mm -hmm. where one minute there's a lot of excitement and a lot of inclusion, and the next minute it's getting shut down. Mm -hmm. So there's also just a lot of competition out there, lots. I mean, I was I'm one of many 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 cellarats who have their label, you know, started their labels, and and uh, I I look at shelves, you know, these days, and I'm like. What is that? You look at the attendees of OPC, and you're like, "Who is that?" And you look at, uh, you know, it, it's just there's there's labels right and left, mm -hmm. and everyone's everyone's fighting for that spot. Well, since we're talking about COVID, we might as well talk about COVID. Sure. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's September of 2020. Here's popular. <laughs> it's a yeah. popular thing to talk about. September 2020, and we're still dealing with the effects of it uh, months in. Now, I'm curious. You've talked a little bit about it, but sort of overall, how has it kind of affected your, your wine life, yeah. uh, your, your life in general? Uh, and and how have you adapted? And, and as you look ahead, what are you seeing um, for dealing with it in the future and, and kind of coming out of it? Yeah, I think for me, I spoke this to this a little bit earlier. Um, it has opened me up to the way forward being more of a collaborative way forward. Um, so the way I live my life, um, the relationships in my household, uh, I have a, a tremendously, incredibly supportive uh, family, my son, my wife, um, supportive friends through all, all of this. You see the friends who come back every single day and want to talk and, and whatnot. And you then to outside my house to my neighborhood. And I'm really thankful that I live in such a great community like McMinnville and how that community interacts on a day-to-day -day basis um, and supports. There's a lot of local economy there. Um, there is a tremendous support on my street. There's tremendous support from my, my son's school, a very collaborative way. And it makes me want to collaborate mm -hmm. with them. It mm -hmm. makes me want to do my part mm -hmm. and not just be the parent who, who once upon a time sent their kid out the door to go to school. I want to, I want to be a part of that process. Mm -hmm. And then from Outside of that, you know, as I mentioned, I started working closer with local farms to access everything from protein to just produce to um, ways of getting out of the house. Uh, to be honest, one of my favorite places to go with my family it was to a farm up the road called uh, Tabula Rasa, mm -hmm. which is a permaculture operation, uh, pasture raised uh, pork and, and um, Scottish Highland cattle and things like that. And a wonderful, wonderful uh, place that's still expanding and and the, the things that they're doing there are really inspiring. And I'm finding ways of collaborating with them both here and they're finding ways of collaborating, you know, there. So you start these relationships where you suddenly like, we don't have to do this alone. Mm -hmm. And that's really been the big thing for me is I don't want to feel alone in this. And it, we've all, 
initially felt very alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that more friendships and more collaboration was the way forward. That's what I was inspired to. Um, and so I pushed for that in my personal life, and I pushed for that here mm-hmm. at Abbott Claim. And um, that's a big part of it. And I think that speaks to the bigger questions we're having politically and socially as well. And uh, things that we're, we're being forced to address mm-hmm. in a very real way, in a very necessary way. And I think collaboration is a part of all of that. Um, I don't think we all just take our slap on the hands and bow, you know, put our heads down until it's safe to look, to look up. I, I think we can find peace of mind in all of this, and we can um, the idea of a, of normal going back to normal of a new normal. Like I don't, I don't want normal to be a part of my vocabulary anymore. I want to move forward, <laughs> and um, I, I want to see what's next. I'm ex- I'm very excited for what's next because <laughs> uh, it's been a tough year. Yeah. As you look ahead then for, uh, I'm curious for Harvest specifically and then for kind of moving on, how will things change here at Abbott Claim because of COVID and how mm-hmm. will things kind of change in the industry uh, just kind of from your pers- your perspective Yeah, starting, starting with Harvest <clears throat> 2020? Yeah, it's something new every single day. Um, you know, obviously in the vineyard, um, there's... Uh, there's a lot of safety precautions and you're having to work with less labor so that people can spread out more, um, making sure everyone's taking care of themselves. I care a lot about people. And, but I, I, I work with a, um, a vineyard contractor mm-hmm. and um, so I'm incredibly thankful for their support this year. Um, what a brutal year to just try to, to, to start fresh and hire a brand new crew and everything like that. I'm, I'm really thankful that that wasn't necessarily the thing that that was done um so i'd say in the vineyard it's it's people's safety um health overall health and happiness Mm. i i care about people emotionally and want them to feel comfortable and but the work still has to get done um so there's been some some setbacks some frustrations some big learning curves for me um and so i'm thankful that um the people who did it well early on were able to accede to adapting systems. Um, the biggest setback for me that's been frustrating is just not, not getting to cultural practices as timely as I would like to have. Mm-hmm. And then we had a really low uh, bloom, you know, poor, uh, low f- fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, so poor fruit set, uh, uneven ripening, but clusters are really small. The berries are really small for what we do here at Abbott Claim, that's gonna be really exciting. Um, but as we enter the harvest period, um, yeah, logistically, it's very interesting. So um, I've you know, had to look closer at things like mechanical, more mechanized systems um, and trying to pencil them out. It's, uh, when I pencil them out, it still doesn't translate based on the yields and the quality that we go for here. It doesn't necessarily make it any more cost efficient to go mechanical, but it does make it very uh, a much safer place. Mm-hmm. But there's some things that just have to be done by hand. Um, so learning what we can, uh, how we can accede to the different needs of, of how these grapes are going to come off. I do have clients here as well as fruit that comes in house, mm-hmm. um, acceding to their needs, both qualitatively and also acceding to the crew's needs. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so we'll be working with smaller crews. Man, gone are the days of 10 people running at one picking bin to dump their, their buckets and, and trying to like, you know, do all the, it's just, it's uh, gonna look very different this year. And the frustration that um, the crews are gonna have because of that, because it's gonna limit their ability to make money. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big deal. Um, it's gonna uh, limit how fast they can, you know, get a job done, which is gonna cause a lot of stress for, for winemakers, for grape growers and everything. And, and um, you know, we're, it, it's, it's gonna be very interesting. Um, in the winery, once again, very interesting. Separating people, face shields, lots of protection. The, how do you create that social, jovial nature that is harvest, that is that, that energy, that buzz in the air? I think we can still do it. Mm -hmm. I think we just have to get comfortable with certain things. It's taken a long time to get used to emotionally and psychologically going down, you know, going into any place and just seeing everyone's faces covered up. You know, I was in Roth's a month or so ago and I saw Marcus Goodfellow and, and uh, we both stared at each other for a quick second. I know you, but that's about all we got right now. And, you know, it's obviously spending a lot of time at home doing a lot of home projects, home repairs. And so you go to Lowe's and stuff like that, get, get supplies and you see people and you just look at each other and you're like, are you so-and-so? Um, I'm, I'm done with that, um, but uh, I'll be happy when that's not a thing, um, the emotional, psychological effects of that. But that doesn't mean we can't still sort of have a, a jovial celebration during harvest. Um, fewer people, um, more uh, safer spaces, uh, managing people that way, and uh, working with smaller crews. It's going to take a long time, but uh, I really hope I, I, I still believe in the quality of the vintage. I can't, there's no denying that. You know, a drop of wine hasn't been made yet, but I believe we can still make great wine in a vintage like this. Yeah. Do you think it's, uh, you mentioned kind of the new normal and how people are talking about new normal, will we return to normal, will things, will things change? Do, sure. you, do you think there are things that are being implemented this year that will stay? Uh, or, or, or will it be a rush to get back to previous harvests as soon as possible? Wow. That's a big, I think systems of efficiency, as long as they were able, they actually translated um, economically and qualitatively, um, I think those will remain. I think people will see that. And I think that speaks to more than just the wine industry. I think the fact that a lot of businesses have virtualized and are finding some success in that virtual format, mm -hmm. um, there's no reason for them to to sign leases on buildings anymore and things like that. So it's, you know, the, the trickle down effect is gonna be felt for a long time down the road and how it translates. But for here, um, for the, I'd say the, the quality of product we're, we're looking at, the, the, the winery is brand new and so a lot of the equipment inside has yet to really be, this will be its first, it's maiden voyage. And um, I don't wanna make a Titanic reference, but, uh, <laughs> but I think there was a lot of thoughtfulness put into the design of this place and uh, a lot of talent and, and understanding of, of what went into the equipment and everything. And I believe this is a, a facility that could get a lot done with fewer people. Mm -hmm. um, I think those, those methods are in place. And I think that is the way forward. I think operations are going to be looking at um, whether they're large winery operations or large vineyard operations, they're gonna be look at, 
looking more to uh, minimizing the amount of actual people and labor they need to have there. Mm -hmm. This has created a lot of opportunity for that. To even even the way you you look at equipment, vineyard equipment. You know, there's there's some. I trialed a machine earlier this year that uh, I was familiar with with previous vineyards that you know both does undervine weeding and desuckers at the same time. I'm like, wow, if you had that on the front and then had a mower on the back, you could get really three passes all at once. You know, it's no, that's that's pretty uh, ambitious. But at the same time, it's that thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, how can I how can I really take qualitative and efficient uh, ideas and, and measure them out and, and see what lasts? Mm -hmm. um, I think for some people, it's it's going to look at a lot of me mechanization. For here and and what we're pushing for and what we're striving for and for what we already work with, um, there's a lot of handheld operations. And so that just means we're gonna have to do with fewer people and it's gonna take a longer time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you mentioned earlier that the, the fruit set this year are obviously low across the, across the valley, across the, the state, but you mentioned being excited about it for a particular reason. Tell me, tell me what about this fruit set excites you this year? Uh, the skin to juice ratio. Um, you know, if you're, if you're someone who's looking for volume, it's just not going to happen. Um, juice yields are going to be very low. There's just not going to be a lot of wine made from, from most parts of, of the Willamette Valley. I can't speak to the rest of, of Oregon. I know we've, I've visited some sites. I'm like, wow, there's still really healthy looking grapes here and a lot of them. Mm. Um, so I'd say a majority of what I'm hearing around the valley really is similar to what we're seeing here. Um, smaller clusters, smaller berries, uh, thicker skins, that really great uh, skin to juice ratio. Um, I would throw out references of 2012, maybe 2008, especially even temperature-wise this time of year. Um, and those were great years for, for Oregon wine. Um, Abbott Claim tends to pack on the tannin. Um, I think that's one of the reasons it it's, uh, stands out on the Savannah Ridge, um, is the, the quality of uh, tannin, the, the phenolic quality here mm -hmm. uh, in general. And so this will be a year to, to really um, consider those ideas uh, in the winery. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a lot of different tools to work with this year, so I think that'll be, it's, 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 it's weird to have to suddenly be in a year where you design a winery and you build it for a certain amount of production and then suddenly it's like, this is gonna be like not even half full kind of thing. Um, but, you know, eventually. Mm -hmm. So does, does that answer your question? Okay, mm -hmm. I, yeah, it's, it's that, that greater skin to juice ratio um, and really attention to detail in the winery, I think will lead to, if you're gonna approach this year with your protocol oriented routine, I don't think, I think this year will be generous in some, for some people with how they approach a winemaking and not so generous for other people and how they approach winemaking, mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned earlier, this is not the only, obviously the only site. Uh, you're, you're, you have other sites you work with and you're developing the new site. So tell us about the, the new project in the Old Amity Hills. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we uh, own and manage uh, a vineyard just up the road from here. It's still in the Yamaha Carlton AVA called Oak Springs Vineyard. And that's a relatively young site. Um, but then we also are in the process of uh, developing a, a really exciting new project, or I would say project, it's a, it's a vineyard right now. Um, it's about 164 acres in the Eola Amity Hills. Uh, it's directly across from Temperance Hill. Mm -hmm. And um, it's set back in. So from Bethel Heights Road, you really just see a farmhouse and a pond and some pasture and some oak woodland. And if you drive back in, um, it suddenly opens up into this very wild, very steep expanse. Mm -hmm. 
and um, it's you know I think we start or start out right around that at the, at the lowest elevation you're you're 350 to 400 and then we get well above a thousand feet at the top and we'll be developing it in at least two phases the first phase is is we're pretty much in layout design mode right now mm -hmm. and that's been an exciting process what a privilege to be back in the hills the Eola Hills and to be working on that particular hillside the western the western side really of the Eola Hills which which has largely you know, not many people have been in that neighborhood. You know, the Castiles. You know, what was O'Connor Vineyard? You know, there there's some Temperance Hill. Those were really the first pioneers on that that side. Mm -hmm. um, I'm probably forgetting someone. I'm sure they'll they'll mention it to me at some point. But um, that you know that side of the Eola Hills has 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 not been approached for very long because there is a it's very steep. Mm -hmm and there's a lot of sand over there. And um, so that site really is that great, on the western side of the Ola Hills, you get that sausage grinder effect of the volcanic soils and the sedimentary soils. So down at the, the bottom, we are you know ancient marine sandstone. And as you go up, it starts to just kind of twist and turn where you've got fossils intermingling with vol you know, uh, volcanic material. And then as you get up, it gets very rocky, very fast, very steep. Mm. <clears throat> It's just a really exciting site, and going in there, the first day I went in there, you know, you see deer, there's, was a cougar caught on a trail camera, there's like, it's wild. It's very wild, and you just see this, this opportunity for both habitat, but also for vineyard. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the task at hand. I have to get this done. That's the job. That's why we bought this. Um, so, how do I do it thoughtfully? And... I have this idea of, of just, I, can I do this differently than anyone else has done so far? Not in the sense that what everyone else did was wrong, I certainly don't believe that. It's the talents of those people that I'm relying on to get this done. Um, but can I develop a vineyard in a more sustainable and thoughtful way? Mm -hmm. So that instead of like doing all the damage and then trying to like, you know, build back in systems, how can I keep those systems in place? Mm -hmm. And so we're developing it in a very interesting way. Um, with our, our partner down, or with our vineyard developer. And thankfully they're um, very open to, they're, they're very inspired by the site as well. And they like the idea that if, if this is what we wanna do and we're willing to put the money into it, then we can do some of these things. Mm -hmm. And um, that's really it. I mean, it, it's really an exciting site. It's, it's wet, you know, a lot of interesting aspects there's some northern facing stuff, there's western, there's, there's all kinds of different aspects um, and a lot of opportunity for different terrains. So the first phase of it is primarily Pinot Noir and that'll be everything below say 900 feet will be Pinot Noir, then everything above will be all Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and that'll be phase two. We do have a lease there right now with a, a Christmas tree grower. So once those trees are out, we'll um, come in and, and uh, do the work that needs to be done there. I really see you know, it, it is one site, but I almost see three or four completely separate vineyards in that site. Mm -hmm. You know, just, it, there's just so much, it's so dynamic. <clears throat> and the office views are not bad. I mean, you, you re really feel like you're planting a vineyard on top of the world. I mean, it's, I look right, people talk about the Van Duzer Corridor. That's my office window there. It is, no, not just so somewhere out there is the Van Duzer Corridor. It is like, you know, <laughs> like right there in your face. Um, so maybe there will be some fun uh, Pinot Camp uh, seminars mm -hmm. at that place too. Mm -hmm.
So you've got a, you got a lot going on. So tell me what. Yeah. Tell, me, tell me about the, the future. The future for yourself. The future for <coughs> for, for the for the projects. The various, yeah. The various uh, Abbott claim and et cetera projects. Um, what do you see as you look down the road for yourself and for the projects? I'm really excited about um, curating land in that sense and overseeing. It's really almost you know. There's all these different systems at play, and that's what I'm really excited about. And and I really. Um, want to build in those systems to where I can manage each site to its needs mm -hmm. and not a one-size-fits-all kind mm -hmm. of thing mm -hmm. um, and to have build in that support network that allows me to do that um, because I see I see right now the potential for three Grand Cru properties and I don't take that lightly and um, that's really it, it's a day-to-day process and I'm excited about the day-to-day -day. like I'm excited to come to work every single day and I'm excited about the people I get to work with yeah there's some days that are more frustrating than others so I'd say as far as the future goes I I'm really I have to take it day by day <laughs> mm -hmm. I really I'm hesitant to kind of create some image in my head of, of what that looks like other than um, I'll know it when I get there it's like I said, I think at the beginning of the interview, like, I don't know that it's ever been wine, mm -hmm. but it is certainly a tremendous translator of experience and land um, and the interaction. You know, I don't want to over, over uh, anthropomorphize the grapevine because it's so easy to do, but um, I, I just like that, that interaction, that engagement with the land as a, as a whole. And I want that to be celebrated in, in the way it comes through in the grapes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's the future. It's a bit abstract, <laughs> but it's day to day. It really is. Yeah. Aren't, aren't we all right now? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what about for the industry in general? What do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine on a, on a, larger, a larger scale? I, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, I think it's here to stay. I think it's even more interesting to people. Um, I think the unfortunate um, ordeals of our colleagues to the south and what they seem to endure yearly now, and um, it's it's just devastating. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that also makes um, heading north a bit more attractive to some of these people. Mm -hmm. um, and Oregon has always been a very welcoming industry, mm -hmm. um, and with the the amount of interest that's come in, the outside interest that's come in, um, especially over the past decade, there's probably been a bit more conversations and, and whatnot about whether that's good or bad. I think it's been good. I think it's, it's really brought in the exposure of Oregon wine. And I think we um, are, I, I think that it is, it will be a part of the, the daily conversation of wine for people at some point in the future. I think it's here to stay. I think it's going to grow. I think we need to be concerned about habitat resilience, site resilience, water, um, making sure that uh, it, we're not just a sustainable wine industry, but we're a sustainable region. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be where a lot of the work needs to be done is that might actually mean limiting some of these these operations. It's easy, for, that's an easy one for me to say because, oh, I've got, we've got vineyards and everything like that. What are you, who are you to say I can't do something? Um, but I think we, as an industry, we have to think about not just 
our own personal needs, but we have to think about the region and how sustainable is that, you know, because we have to support diversified agriculture, you know, the struggles that they're having in central Oregon right now with the people trying to grow the food for everyone in the region don't have water anymore. But, you know, the towns and cities just around it have plenty of water to water their lawns. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't want that to be a thing here. I think we need to take care of agriculture, and I think that that uh, extends beyond vineyards. And uh, it needs to be a sustainable part of community. Uh, and from that, I think the communities in the region need to be more supportive of agriculture in the region, too. So I think it's a bigger idea. I think Oregon wine industry is here to stay, but I think we need to have conversations beyond um, just our industry. You talked about from your own, from both your own personal experience and from kind of general experience, the, the welcoming nature, the collaborative nature of, yeah. of the industry here, uh, especially welcoming new people into it. Uh, I'm curious if that if that has changed at all, or if you could foresee that changing if there were a, a massive influx of, of outsiders to the to the industry. I think I think Oregon has Oregon in general, or at least west of the Cascades, and. And maybe I'll even scale that thinking down a little bit more. I'd say the northwestern part of, of you know, west of the cat, this, this, this hub of, of uh, well, well, maybe you can even expand that because there's really amazing things happening in southern Oregon too. But I'd say wine regions throughout, you know, from, from the bottom of Oregon all the way to the top, you know, especially getting up into Portland, and communities have always been, it's always been attractive to, um, outdoor recreationalists, to environmentalists, to artists, to musicians, to um, wine growers, to winemakers, to, uh, it's always attracted people who want to make a go for themselves. Mm -hmm. It is not the Silicon Valley where you go to join. You go to be a part of a community. You come to, to Oregon, I think, to be a part of a community. And I think that's always really been a culture here, at least since I've been here. and. You know, and you can reference all kinds of influences there from the really rich music scene that the Northwest, both Washington and Oregon, has celebrated for decades now, to the art movements, to um, just just how creative people are. It, it draws people who are more uh, have creative mm -hmm. energy about mm -hmm. them and, and just want to explore life that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it, I think you will. Yeah, I think there'll be exclusivity. I think there'll be more inclusion on some levels. It's just going to become more dynamic. There will be more exclusivity, without a doubt. Um, especially on on what you know, whatever the other side of this looks like. I think there's going to be a lot of doors closed and a lot of terrain and markets locked down mm -hmm. by certain uh, competitors and people with a lot of power and you know market potential, mm -hmm. you know, market opportunity. So I think it'll be both. I think there'll be increased exclusivity, but I think there'll be a, still a lot. It's, it's always been the nature of it. It's always been the nature of it. Right, last question for you. If someone were to come to you asking uh, for your advice on entering the wine industry here in Oregon, what would your words of wisdom to them be? If you want to do it academically, study agronomy. <laughs> <laughs> To the soil. Take, take a viticulture class, sure, but study agronomy. Um, and really, I think the bigger thing that has been a reoccurring theme for me uh, 
is, is do the work, be open to it. My more humbling lessons I've learned came from me being too arrogant. And um, you have to have those lessons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do the work, be willing to do the work. And whether or not you choose to implement that in your philosophy, that work you did, that particular work you did, it's still worth it. Um, do the work, be open, be collaborative, and you really, it, it's a forge your own path. Mm-hmm. There were times where I thought all, all doors were closed to me and I realized it was just in my head. I had to just kind of shoot the moon and, and so I did and I pulled into a driveway one day and that, that unlocked the door for me mm-hmm. that I had shut, that I had shut. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, there's a lot of people who are willing to help along the way if you're willing to come in and do the work and to be self-motivated. Mm-hmm. That, it is an inter- industry where, where very rarely are you going to just kind of get, you know, walk down the red carpet all the way. You, you really have to, like, go off on your own trail and, mm-hmm. and uh, have fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so the questions that I have for you, Great. is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? No, it's been a wonderful interview. I mean, I, I appreciate you coming out here. It's nice to see someone. Um, <laughs> and it's a beautiful day. It's not too hot yet. Yeah. And um, no, thanks for coming out. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing, sharing your story, sharing your perspectives, and yeah. sharing this beautiful space you get to call a work, a work office here. And <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.